This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Howard Heronian, Vice President and Chief Quality and Innovation Officer of Hartford Healthcare Heart and Vascular Institute. Dr. Heronian, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know we have a lot to talk about in terms of the healthcare industry and what's going on in cardiology today, but before we dive into those questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. I have been an interventional cardiologist for 26 years now, and I've been in both private practice and as well as worked at academic teaching hospitals. About five years ago, my my private practice was actually acquired by the health system of Hartford HealthCare, and uh, that's led to some changes in my my daily roles. Um, part, Part of it was to develop and integrate a regional heart and vascular institute, so I've been involved in recruiting, integrating cardiology practices, developing programs, et cetera, in a two-state footprint, which has been you know, a nice challenge and, and quite a change from um, a lot of my career, which was uh, strictly clinical-based. Got it. Well, what was it like making that switch from being the clinical practitioner to being more strategic then in building out the Heart and Vascular Institute? Well, it, you know, it was really fun. I mean, it is fun. It's ongoing. It's um, never changing. Uh, and in a way, it, it allows me to leverage sort of a lot of my clinical experience uh, to, to expand quality care uh, throughout the whole region. And so it's, it's been great. I've been able to develop work groups around innovation, enterprise imaging, virtual health. I've been able to spin up specialty programs because we're really trying to execute on a vision here that is all about providing the best coordinated and personalized care to patients where they live. So in order to do that, you sort of have to leverage innovation, um, you know, change management, all these things that you're not taught in med school and you're not really doing day to day when you're, you know, operating in the cath lab. So it's, it's, it's been a nice challenge um, and I'm still challenged by it, but I, I hope I'm delivering what heart and vascular needs and, I, and I, I'm really excited to continue it. That's really great to hear. Um, was there anything that you did in order to prepare yourself for that role, especially as you mentioned, since it's not something that typically you get experience in during medical school? Well, I came to it with a, some of the skill sets because along the way of my clinical practice, I was a bit entrepreneurial and programmatic. I had started a private practice. I grew it. I integrated it with um, another big health system before Hartford in a way. I was in an academic center. You know, I served on multiple committees, led departments. Um, you know, I actually attended a, at Yale University, a management program for physicians uh, one semester. Uh, and so I, I sort of prepared some of the skills along the way just to get done what I needed to get done, which was to, you know, start practices, uh, start cath lab programs, uh, bring care to patients in, my, in, in more of the private practice world. Uh, and then some of those skills obviously apply when you're, you're dealing with bigger systems. So I felt a little bit prepared. And then Hartford HealthCare actually offers a nice uh, executive and professional development institute model here. So in my first year here, I went through that as well and got to know my way around the system and, and, and met some, a lot of the stakeholders and decision makers. So that really helped to uh, make me more effective, I think, in my current role, which, as you mentioned, is focused now on uh, quality and innovation throughout our system. That's great to hear, and what a great opportunity. Now, uh, looking at cardiology specifically, what are some of the biggest issues that you're seeing today? Well, uh, manpower, number one. It's uh, very difficult if you're in the uh, business of, of growing a practice or recruiting 
especially clinical non-invasive cardiologists or even um, advanced practice providers uh, into practice. There's a growing demand on the, on the patient side, you know, for services with our aging population. Uh, and now we're seeing some early retirements. I think COVID really accelerated that. Uh, we're, we're facing burnout where even though some of our physicians may not uh, be retiring, they're clearly, you know, taking heed of, of wellness as a priority. And while not cutting back, maybe not being as available or as uh, aggressive in, in seeing a large volume of patients, let's put it that way. So I think manpower becomes a number one issue. And, I, and part of that is hyper-specialization. You know, what I see in cardiology is a, from going from a well-trained, broadly trained cardiologist of 25 years ago, uh, now all of our fellows obviously are going into things like electrophysiology, uh, advanced heart failure, advanced imaging, um, interventional cardiology where, where I work. Uh, currently we have, you know, spin-off fellowships in structural heart disease, peripheral disease. So it, now it takes basically a village to take care of a patient, you know, so it becomes a challenge how we best coordinate that care so it stays pa patient-centric and still provide entry-level cardiology, you know, out in the offices and in the hospitals and the emergency rooms. How do we have our generalist cardiologists available? So this is what I see as a big issues, manpower, hyper-specialization, and then more recently, obviously, is uh, sort of what I call the COVID pause. And it means we're focused so much on just staffing, supporting the hospitals, uh, seeing patients virtually, which uh, can be a challenge for some people, um, at the same time trying to still deliver the same quality care. So that hopefully will be uh, an issue that will go away, hopefully in the next six months. Got it. That, that's so interesting to think about how all of those things come together to really create a, a bit of a gap in, in the um, specialty care that people need in the health heart space. Excuse me. I'm wondering, you know, do you see any kind of um, solution? Do we have to unwind some of the specialization there? Or how do you see this evolving over the next few years in order to? I don't think you <laughs> that's a great question. I don't think we can uh, put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. I think uh, it's a natural progression, right? We see people get more subspecialized as our knowledge base grows, right? We used to have just the New England Journal of Medicine, Jack, and Circulation to read. Now each one of those has 10 sub-journals, you know, and there's rapidly expanding technology in all the fields. So personally, I would want my spouse, my parents to go to the best subspecialist for whatever their problem is knowing that it takes that type of training now, that type of focus. So really the challenge becomes how do we best uh, coordinate it? How do we make sure that the patient still feels uh, well cared for, that somebody's uh, steering the ship for them? And I think that's where the you know, general cardiologist would come in. And that's, again, my number one challenge is training and finding those good general cardiologists because so many are going into subspecialty care. Um, that I think at some point we may be like the primary care field where we are going to rely on some team approaches with advanced practice providers uh, to help manage that and keep the patients uh, happy and, and feel that they're uh, well cared for. Got it. That makes sense. And so potentially expanding, like you said, the um, 
the team approach, having the advanced practice providers coming in and being part of the team as well. Are there any other ways that you see heart care evolving over the next 18 months or so? Well, I do see that as we recover from sort of this COVID lockdown, I think we'll be able to engage physicians and hospitals again into more exciting sort of uh, research and innovation where some of those programs have had to take a back seat to the demands of just meeting the clinical challenge of COVID cases. Uh, so I think starting to meet again on a local level, meet again at national meetings, because that's where the informal brainstorming takes place that usually reignites the creativity and innovation. Because my experience in the past two years has been a lot of you know Zoom meetings and a lot of uh, problem-focused meetings or uh, specialty-specific meetings where presentations are made, et cetera, but there's, we're lacking that sort of inherent creativity that comes from just meeting people, having time, having uh, a little breather from the pressures of, of our clinical work. And we really haven't had that with COVID. We've all been under stress from staffing shortages, patient overloads, pulled in many directions. So I think in the next 18 months, what I'd like to see is a return towards that more focus on uh, our own subspecialties and how we can be creative, innovative, how we can move the needle. Absolutely. That's so interesting and a really great point. I hope we're able to move closer in that direction as well. Now, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? Well, I'm really excited about the potential of harnessing uh, the technology of big data to improve both patients and providers' lives. And one example, let's say, would be, you know, natural language processing for capturing unstructured data uh, in the medical record and then making it useful both for descriptive, predictive, or even prescriptive analytics. So to help the doctors do their daily work with less manual labor, less manual documentation, less, uh, you know, why is a doctor spending 20% of their time either typing or doing billing manually or documentation. Why can't we use technology to capture a lot of that data, uh, make it digestible, and then send it back in an actionable way back to the provider to help a patient care? So I think that's really exciting. You know, our whole approach to data, uh, our whole approach to data management and analytics, I think is really going to be the next uh, big step in cardiology. And we're, we're using it a little bit now, but we really haven't had the focus or the uh, come to a decision on how to do it. So that's going to be a really uh, fun challenge to see unfold in the next five to 10 years. And then I'm, what I'm worried about is, uh, in a way, a sort of a trend that we've seen from private practice to more corporate medicine. And while there's a strong argument in favor of system-based model of delivery care, it's still, in my experience, there's also a downside to that, and it involves all the you know, bureaucracy and mandates and uh, standardization that can get in the way of that more personal, private, independent physician-patient relationship. And in some ways, I also see it sapping the autonomy of, of, of colleagues, uh, and that's a hallmark of any profession, right, is, is professional autonomy. Make your decisions. Your focus on the patient's care, that's your only concern, but now we see situations where a physician enters you now from training right into something that I'm working in now, a system or a hospital-based practice, 
or a big corporate practice where there's less of that, uh, there's, other, there's other masters to which they have to answer. And hopefully they're still focused on the patient first, but there's a, there can be a lot of distractions and a lot of uh, subtle and not so subtle uh, shifts that occur uh, from, from the old model of medicine. So that, that concerns me. I don't see a way to reverse it. I mean, I'm part of it now, so I see it from both sides. But it's unfortunate in a way that private practice has, has become so difficult to sustain because there were benefits uh, to, the, to, the, to the patient and I think to the whole health system, uh, to physicians being able to operate in a, in a private practice, in a single specialty environment. Absolutely. You know, I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. And when you look at the practice environment right now, is there a way um, in your mind to do this right in terms of whether it's consolidation or other means of making sure we're supporting the physicians without going completely to the corporate practice of medicine, but still retaining some of those unique and beneficial aspects of private practice, um, you know, without the challenges that it can can have for um, quality and and uh, the financial side of things as well. Yes, there are ways. And I think we're one of the reasons I came to Hartford Healthcare is I think it exemplifies it. I think if you try to make sure that the patient and the physician remain at the center of all the, a lot of the decision-making anyway, helping to support the provider in treating that patient. So all of your technology, all of your uh, emphasis is on that goal. So one of the reasons you join a system is to be relieved as a doctor of the burdens of uh, the administration, the billing, the hiring, the firing, the running an HR department in your life, et cetera. And I think if a, if a system is going to be successful, they take that off of the back of the physician. And what they provide back is the kind of support I mentioned where you have the technology you need to practice the, uh, the support in nursing, in APPs, the support of, in our case, in cardiology, uh, technology and equipment, capital, that you wouldn't have necessarily in private practice, to have the state-of-the-art uh, echo machines in your offices, to have the ability to share uh, data among practices, to be able to analyze data and give it back to your physicians in a way that helps them practice better. And all of that type of data management takes time and investment. So I think those are things that a system can offer back that allows a physician to still practice clinical medicine and clinical cardiology in a way that they, you know, could be most productive and hopefully happy uh, and keep them engaged because part of the burnout problem really is uh, the sense that if you're part of a system and you have a three-year contract or a two-year contract, you're sort of a worker bee and that can be good or bad. But the bad side is I've seen doctors leave. It's like a revolving door. They come, they make contact with patients, they start to grow a practice in our system, and then they go and leave because the contract's up, or they get a better offer somewhere else, or they just decide they want to move. There's not that sense of ownership that someone would have building a practice over 10, 15, 20 years, where you continually grow a practice base, and you, you know your patients, and those are your patients. And so anything we can do as a system that lets physicians you know, stay healthy, stay happy, and stay put is going to benefit 
not only the system, but it's actually going to deliver better care to the patients over time. Got it. I, I think that's a really great point. And thank you so much for going through that. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, could you share a few pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say that it's always good to keep in mind that it's a privilege uh, to be a leader and it always comes with responsibility. And I think for physicians, uh, the responsibility is that we always represent our clinical colleagues because when we're at the table making decisions, uh, there's other folks at the, at the table, you know, CFOs and nursing, biomed, IT, everyone has their own lens, but we're responsible to lead the team clinically and we're ultimately responsible as physicians for the patient's outcome. So you want to keep that in mind as a leader, that that privilege comes with a responsibility to always remember you're there to uh, represent your clinical colleagues. And then I always say that to be a good leader, you always want to start by defining the problem that you're going to be solving because a lot of things come across your desk, people screaming, want this, they need that tomorrow. But oftentimes you can simplify it and you have to, to be successful by defining the problem as specifically as you can before you start the solution. And then always test your assumptions because you're going to be wrong more than you're right. And you're going to learn more than you're going to teach. So define the problem and test your assumptions. And last, I like to say that leadership's not administration. To me, administration is managing the status quo, which is good and necessary to keep the engine going of any organization. But cardiologists have a natural desire to sort of improve things, tinker, advance the state of our knowledge. You know, we, cardiology is very research rich, um, very data rich. And so I would say to a leader, create a vision of the future that encourages that, you know, good data gathering, good evidence-based medicine. And then naturally, you're going to have enrollment by your colleagues. If you have a vision that incorporates that curiosity, that natural desire to, to improve and tinker, you're going to have a following. And those, those are sort of some main points I would share, and I do, with, with people I mentor. Dr. Heronian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Yeah, anytime. It's been a pleasure, Laura.